Hello and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. We get together here every week and discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. Got an interesting show for you today because we're going to talk about protein. In fact, the title of this program is Protein, Pork, Prices, and Prognostications. Did you get that? Protein, Pork, Prices, and Prognostications. Is that a pledge pin on your uniform? Okay. <laughs> We've got great guests, knowledgeable guests, with a company you probably have never heard of, but they have impacted you if you are in the business of agriculture. As you know, agriculture and food production is a big and global business. Lots of moving parts, prices, changing in prices, the markets, of course, if you listen to ag radio, they're always talking about what the markets are doing. All manner of influences this year, 2019, has been very impacted by weather. And then, of course, there's always the moving consumer. Some days this is hot, some years this is hot. So who can give us reliable data on such things with regard to meat? Since we're talking about protein and this entire show is about meat, I have brought in two fantastic guests. Laura Zinger and Russ Barton are employees of a company called Erner Berry. You've never heard of Erner Berry, but Erner Berry does reporting in the protein industry. They've been a two-time client of mine where they brought me in and had me speak to their customers, and I want you to hear from them. Laura Zinger is gonna be my first guest, and we're gonna talk all things protein, then we're gonna bring in the pork expert, Russ Barton, to close out the show. He's pretty busy these days with the African swine fever, so that's why we're gonna give him a reprieve from the first 10 minutes or so of the show. Laura Zinger, Erner Berry, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, I'm glad to be here. Well, we are very happy to have you on. All right, I described the background. Everybody listening to this show is involved in the business of agriculture in some capacity, but they've never probably heard of Erner Berry. What does Erner Berry do? That is a really good question that would really require a pretty comprehensive answer. We do a lot. Primarily, what our mission is, is to provide unbiased, timely information about the protein industry, specifically spot market prices. So what I mean by that is we have analysts who canvass the marketplace every single day, calling people all throughout the supply chain and getting an understanding of what buys and sells are happening for meat commodities. And when I say meat, uh, maybe I'm being too specific because we actually cover poultry. So we cover everything from chicken to turkey, ducks, geese, capon. We cover red meat, including pork and beef. We also cover seafood, a, a huge range of seafood and eggs, both uh, product eggs, so your liquid eggs, your, your solid eggs, your frozen eggs, as well as shell eggs in both the United States and Europe. And so our analysts will canvas the market, verify buys and sells, and then come up with a bulk of trade average so that our customers can rely on a benchmark price to do their negotiations and to base their contracts with more confidence. It mitigates a lot of risk, and obviously, it saves them a lot of time doing that kind of research on their own. So that's our primary function. We also gather uh, hundreds of other pieces of information, possibly more than hundreds, statistics from the USDA, the CME. Uh, we gather futures, just any kind of information that could help our clients to gain background information, supply data, and any type of understanding that could give them more leverage in what they do every day, whether that's a producer, uh, a processor, uh, a buyer, a seller, you name it, they can do what they do better and with more confidence with Erner Berry's information. Yeah, so it's, it's all about data, and it's all about analytics, and that's what Erner Berry does. Uh, who are your clients? That's another great question. Our clients 
range you know, from... Laura, here on the Business of Agriculture podcast, we're filled with great questions. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to answer them all the best that I can. Um, I could tell you that our clients include any people who are stakeholders or people that have an interest in agriculture, specifically the protein industry. So that ranges anywhere from your biggest quick service restaurants and chain stores to wholesale distributors that are regional to uh, somebody who's a packer, right? Somebody who's a producer, somebody who's, you know, having the hens lay the eggs all the way to the restaurant chains that are serving them to the consumer. So anywhere in the value chain where somebody has a vested interest in proteins, we have customers there, including folks who are adjacent to, but still interested in. And what I mean by that is the financial sector, banks, lenders, investors, those type of clients also have a vested interest in the prices and where they go. Yeah, I know that the two times that your company has hired me, they call it the executive conference. They hold it in Las Vegas. And you're talking about the executives from companies like Cargill to Tyson to Foster Farms to Pilgrim's Pride to any company that you've probably heard of, you've probably eaten their products. It was meat and protein. There's a little bit of a tilt toward poultry and egg. But again, you know, you're, you're talking about the beef and the pork and all those folks are there as well. And they show up at this conference because it's a matter of like, okay, where's the industry going? What's the new thing happening right now? What's going on on worldwide production? Because you guys do cover a lot. I thought it was interesting that um, I also was brought in a day early and consulted with the shrimp industry because as you said, seafood, and a lot of folks don't think of aquaculture as a part of agriculture, but clearly it is. Uh, the stat was last year we ate uh, 14 and a half, I think it was, pounds of seafood per American. So your company is gathering all this information and then the people that are your clients pay you to be a subscriber. Is that right? Yes. We have subscription-based services where our clients can have a varying level of information depending on what their need is. And they subscribe to the information that applies to them, um, whether that be, and you, you mentioned poultry and egg, there is a tilt at the executive conference. And in all fairness, we've been doing poultry and eggs longer than we've done anything else. And there isn't an alternative to earn a berry when it comes to market data on poultry and eggs, like there is in some of the other sectors like red meat, like the USDA, right? Not that we would really consider that steep competition because our information is fantastic, but um, there isn't really an alternative. We've been in business for almost 160 years, and our foundation is in poultry and eggs. But yeah, so we have subscription. Wait, wait, what? How, 100 and how many years has Erner Berry been at this? Yeah, almost 160 years, actually. So wait a minute. So 160 years ago, there's still people like out here throwing some grain out in their barnyard to feed the chickens, and somehow they said, we need to know how many people are doing this, how many chickens are going to market. How did that whole thing start? Do you know? Well, that's a really good question. Also, you're full of them. Like you said, you certainly haven't let me down so far. So it started out basically with ships coming in uh, with all different types of products, right? You got your potatoes, you got your hogs, you've got whatever it is on the ship. And then you've got this market right around where the ships are coming in. And there's vendors all throughout this market, right? But people are only going to the place that's really within walking distance to buy there, let's just say chicken. Right. And so what happened was, is that there was such a huge price disparity between this guy and that guy, 
that our founder, or the person who started Ernerberry, Benjamin Erner, decided to start canvassing the different vendors to see what those disparities were and try to even that out. And he started with a publication called The Price Current, which we actually still have today in electronic form that lists the going rate for commodity items. And he did that as the very beginning, the very root of what we do. We actually have some of the old books in a back room here stored very carefully where you can see some of the original publications from way back when. So yeah, 160 years of, of history and we have not stopped changing, innovating and expanding since then. And we have no plan to stop anytime soon. What do you, Laura Zinger, specifically do? You told me you're the sales manager. So you call on who and sell what? That's a, an interesting question. Just recently, I became the sales manager. Uh, prior to that, I did sales as well as the podcast. And now my responsibilities have increased a bit to include also managing the sales team, helping them to service our customers because we don't just sell, right? We're account managers. So we service our customers primarily, we sell secondly. And when I say sell, I use that term loosely because yes, we're generating revenue, but ultimately what we're doing is making sure that we're meeting every need that our customer has. And because we've added so many different services in the last couple of years, that need changes and our clients might not know what we have to offer to give them a solution to whatever the obstacle is. So what I do each day is I work with my clients to help them find the areas in our premium product primarily, which is called Comtel, which is a web-based service that is a subscription model. Find the things in Comtel, the features, the information, the statistics, the answers to whatever these, the problem is that they're having, whether that's saving time, whether it's, again, like I mentioned before, mitigating risk in terms of negotiations, whether that's using some of our tools to export data into their financial systems and make sure that everybody's on the same page in their office, so really what I do is I problem solve all day long, every single day. And a lot of times that turns into additional revenue, but even when it doesn't, our clients are always taken care of. All right. So everything protein, your company has its ear to the ground and can give a report. What sort of info are you compiling? Of course, you already got into that, like where things are, but do you make predictions of where things are going? So we make it a habit not to predict because that would create a conflict of interest because we you know, we quote the market. So if we were anticipating where it would go, that would, that would certainly not look good for us. But we do actually partner with Cattle Facts, who uses our historical data to make uh, projections. And we have a service for that. Um, it's six months worth of forecasting. Again, we don't do it. We supply our information to Cattle Facts and they do that independently. We do have that available for our clients, but we don't do any kind of projecting. What does a rainy farm belt? We're suffering through some of the worst weather from Kansas to Nebraska to Minnesota to Missouri to where I live in Indiana to Ohio. I mean, crops are not getting planted. What's this mean as it relates to protein for consumers? When you're talking about a rainy farm belt, we were just talking about this the other day. Actually, our director of editorial content, Jamie Chadwick Lee, was just talking to me about this the other day, and she really covers this area primarily. But from my position and from my side of that conversation, what I can say is that when it's that rainy, it's very difficult to get corn in the ground right? It's tough. And you come to a time in the season when you haven't gotten the corn in the ground, you kind of have to make a judgment call. Are you going to plant something else? Or what else are you going to do with that plot of land that's just sitting there without the corn in it? And when we know that you know, chickens primarily are fed with corn, lesser on, on the red meat side, but 
primarily on the poultry side, we can really see, you know, that there might be at some point a ripple effect. If it costs more, if the input costs more to raise the chickens, to lay the eggs, then we can see that there might be a correlation between that and an increase in price ultimately for the consumers. Of course, we would never say that that's definite because the market is unpredictable and it, and it is what it is. But at the same time, you know, you could see that based on the input cost, it could certainly have an impact on the output price. Certainly. And, and you know, and I have a degree in agricultural economics and people ask me these questions. And I said, well, it's really simple when, uh, when the supply goes down because we can't plant the crop and I'm here in Indiana and I'm looking around, I'm driving around and I'm telling you things look terrible. So there's going to be less corn, which means when there's less of something and the demand stays constant, if the demand stays constant, there's only one thing that can happen. The price goes up. Speaking of demand and supply, it's been a bad spring for even just your average suburbanite and they're grilling less. You had some commentary, I believe out there about the grillables. Tell me about that. Less steak getting eaten because people can't stand outside because it's raining all the time. Is that what's going on? So that was a podcast that I did with Bruce Longo, who is a box beef reporter here. And of course, he could talk all day about box beef. Uh, my knowledge in that area is limited, but based on our conversation, I can tell you, and just for the record, I'm still outside grilling even when it's raining because the rain doesn't stop me from eating a steak. But generally speaking, what he mentioned to me in the podcast is that retailers generally see a big bump in sales around holidays like Memorial Day weekend or Father's Day or the 4th of July, but Memorial Day weekend really being that peak. And having a lot of wet weather around that time of year can really deter consumers from hitting that really, really big peak and um, and, and getting outside and having a barbecue and grilling. So obviously, as you mentioned, you know, supply and demand, if we're not seeing as much fly off the shelves, then you can see how that would impact the retailer. What about plant-based meat? Plant-based meat. Uh, is Erner Berry reporting on plant-based meat? At this time, we're not uh, reporting on plant-based meat. Obviously, everybody's talking about it, um, but we're always open to exploring new opportunities. The trick is with Erner Berry is that something has to be trading at a commodity level before we would establish a market quotation for it. So we really need to keep an eye on that before we'd be able to really gauge that. Yeah, so we got hog bellies and we got futures on uh, feeder calves, but we don't see anything about the impossible burger being traded on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Uh, so you don't think that there's going to be anything immediately with Erner Berry keeping up with the stats, right? Immediately, I'd say no, but uh, we're always keeping our eye on things like that for sure. All right. Now we have to bring in the biggie because everybody listens to this is saying, all right, Mason, you said you're going to get to pork. Your title is protein pork prices and prognostications. So where is the pork man? I need to hear about pork. I've heard about China. I keep up with trade. I'm an agricultural professional. I've heard about this African swine fever. Get him on. I want to hear from him. Okay. I'm introducing now Russ Barton. And when Russ will tell me his title, I will better be able to explain uh, where we're going with all this. Hey, Damien, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks for being on. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Russ Barton, welcome to the show, The Business of Agriculture, where we talk about issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming, and you are the pork guy. Give it to <laughs> me. What's going on? First off, you are the pork guy, right? That's your, yeah. that's your title? Absolutely. I'm an analyst of pork here as well as director of some of our uh, internet based. Please give me the lay of the land. I've been hearing about it. I keep up with it. You know, we got problems in pork in the world of pork, not here. We got them in Asia. What's happening? Yeah. So there's really three main factors going on with pork right now. One that's been ongoing, the record production, right? We had started that 2016 and it's only accelerated from there as new plants were built. 
I mean, here uh, in the United States, I think that when I spoke to the National Pork Producers Council a couple of years ago, we were going to bring on five new pork processing facilities. And that was, I believe, the year 2018 was when that was going to happen. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And since that point, we've, they've been uh, expanding their capacity. You know, you build the plant and then you got to staff it up and get everybody trained and everything. So throughout that process, 2017, 2018, 2019 now, we've seen expanded uh, production. And before the news of ASF in China, that was looking like a tricky situation, right? You produce all this pork and you're going to need a home for it. Uh, and, and where that home was, was a little uncertain prior to the summer of 2018. Uh, the other factors that's going on, obviously trade deals. People are concerned about trade deals. People don't necessarily have any answers when it comes to trade deals either. That's been a ongoing saga, whether you're talking about Canada, Mexico, Japan, or, or China. Well, well, while we're going back to the first point and then your second point, and I know we're going to get to your third one. You said we've got a bunch more capacity, and the United States of America yeah. hog herd is, is expanding. Am I right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. So how much did we expand by? Because obviously we're filling those plants, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So year over year, uh, it, it varies anywhere between 3 to 5%. Okay. Yeah. So that's about uh, five million. I think we produce about 120, 150 million pigs a year. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So we we we're producing say five million more hogs or something like that. Ten million, five to seven million more hogs each year. And then you said that they've got to find somewhere to go with them. China, everybody thinks is a big uh, export market for us, but the reality is a lot of our pork goes south of the border, right? Yeah, absolutely. Especially in the more recent years, our exports to China have been. Uh, menial, really, between their our trade situation with them, and they have blocked the use of any hogs that were uh, that had ractopamine in in their development. Right, so any any growth inhibitors, um, all of that's been been growth, banned growth, by them. Growth inhibitors, you mean ractopamine is actually a growth promotant? Right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Apologies. Okay. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, China, although it's assumed that we spend all, or send a lot of pork over to China. It's not the case. It's still Mexico, Japan, uh, as you said, even further south of the border, Central South America, uh, and developing Asian nations, you know, Vietnam, Philippines. So from a percentage standpoint, do you know how much percent of our pork even goes to China? Is it, it's not that significant as my understanding. No, no, it's very, very small. Very Single small. digit percentage? Sure. Yeah. Of our exports. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they have African swine fever over in China. We don't. Are we going to get this? We're doing what we can to prevent it. The biggest problem with ASF is its lifespan. And it is difficult to keep a rein on it. Just ask China, right? It's spread to every province within China. Uh, and that is not only because of wild hogs roaming and, and spreading it, right? The on is, that, is that what they said? Did they, did, did they try and say this was because of some sort of wild boars or spreading this around? Because I can't really believe that that's how, you know, you got a confinement operation in a modern facility. I can't imagine that's really the case. Well, the issue is a lot of them aren't modern facilities, right? So uh, roughly half of their farms are considered small or medium size, which means a thousand head or less. So you're talking on a grand scale, much bigger than what we have here, a lot of mom and pop shop kind of situations with with these hog farms so your biosecurity measures 
you can imagine are lacking in some of these situations. We've seen images, there's a three foot concrete wall between your domesticated hogs and your, you know, what you could assume where wild hogs would be. Uh, so that certainly has an, an, an effect, but when getting back to the lifespan of this disease, on frozen meat, it could last a thousand days. Oh, okay. So that way, African swine fever can be in a frozen, uh, a frozen piece of pork, you know, a pork loin in a package, frozen, and then it sticks around for three years? Yeah, yeah. Okay. On, on dried meat, 300 days, which that's what comes into effect when you're talking about uh, Chinese travelers. So something that I, I personally didn't really appreciate is uh, I'll, they travel with meat, you know, and I don't want to make any generalizations, but there have been numerous cases where uh, Chinese tourists have been stopped with some sort of dried meat product, right? Their equivalent of a Slim Jim or whatever you want to call it. Uh, when you're talking about a 300-day lifespan on this virus, you can imagine a situation where, you know, the wrapper gets thrown aside, someone steps on that wrapper, gets into their livestock carrier truck, and, and boom, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I can, and that's, that's what we're, we're concerned about here in the United States of America. Speaking of the United States of America, so China doesn't use a lot of our pork. Single-digit percentage of our exports actually go to China, but we do sell a lot of pork. In fact, we, were a, uh, we, we just became a net exporter starting, what, 20 years ago, I think is my understanding, that we used to not send a lot of pork overseas, and that's like quadrupled or some amazing number yeah. in the last decade, all right? Now it's, now it's roughly somewhere between 20 and 25% given, on the, given the year. 20, 25% of our pork production gets shipped. Yeah, gets shipped overseas. Okay, that's fantastic. And then a lot of people listening to this may not know that China is the number one global producer of pork. And they actually are amazingly big because this is their number one consumed meat. They, it's my understanding, produce almost five times or a little over five times the hogs that we do in a year. Is that right? Yeah. So China produces almost the same amount of pork as all other countries combined. And, and that's pretty astounding. So yeah, like yeah. five times U.S. production. We're the number two producer. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, China owns Smithfield, the United States' biggest pork <laughs> producer and processor. Does that mean all that pork can just go to China? Because right now it's not happening, but all of a sudden they've got dead pigs. What are they going to do? <laughs> so yeah, you would look at them as probably the, the number one source of U.S. pork going over to China. They're not the only ones that can. It, it, basically, you just need to have a, a rectopamine-free facility, and China has to approve your plant. There are other companies that have plants approved for shipments over to uh, China without isolating them. You know, it, it comes down to we could be directly affected, sending pork directly to China, which I'm sure will happen at some point, or there's a, you know, there's a a bleed over effect with all the other countries sending pork to China, which then we would help compensate their shortfall, right? We said, we've already seen that with Canada. Uh, Canada was sending every ounce of available pork that they had to China earlier this year. And we then were also, sending so then we send our pork up to China, or Canada. Exactly, exactly. Okay, and by the way, to refresh for the, the viewer that said, the listener that says, wait a minute, that's ractobamine word again. Ractobamine, dear listener, is a growth promotant that uh, is given to hogs and China says you can't use it. So either you could go ractopamine free, meaning you don't use this, uh, this product, or China says we're starving, we don't care anymore. Which one's going to happen? 
<laughs> I truly believe China is going to be backed into such a monumental corner that, and the ractopamine thing, you could ask people, it seems more of a political stance than a uh, health and well-being stance. Correct. So, you know, it, when push comes to shove, there's a good chance that that kind of thing could get uh, dropped, you know? Got it. Uh, are there going to be food shortages? In China or here? Uh, we'll start with China. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you're talking about pork here, which is 60% of their consumed protein, right? Um, they've already admitted to losing 20% of their herd. This is official numbers, right? And anything coming out of China, you got to take with a pinch of salt. Especially so you're, if it's you're thinking if they admit that they've lost 20% of uh, their hog herd, which again would almost equate to our entire United States herd. So just think of that. Exactly. If they, if they have lost one fifth officially that they're even admitting, that means that they've lost, imagine the United States lost every hog and piglet and sow, every pig in the United States of America dead. Is yeah. that what we're Yeah, absolutely. And probably uh, they are lowballing it significantly. So right now they're scrambling and they're saying we still have money and we still got uh, the people to eat. So where does this go? Three months from now, four months from now, we're ramping up production, of course, uh, but it takes a while. So this is, this is a global event. Uh, there is no single country that could help China fully. In fact, so one of my favorite stats that goes along with this is if every country that exports pork everything that we ship to Mexico, everything we ship to Japan, everything Canada ships and Brazil ships, if everybody diverted all of their pork exports to China, it would only constitute 16% of their pork consumption. <laughs> we, we're never going to give up all of our exports to you know, our, our well-established partners to Mexico, to Japan, to help China. So the actual percentage that we could ship in pork terms to China's very, uh, is considerably smaller, you know? So all the globe, anybody that has the capacity to ship pork is going to. We've already seen China importing more beef than they ever have before. Uh, their imports from poultry, of poultry from certain countries has spiked. You know, this is, this is going to span across multiple, any protein source, I would think. Yeah, so that's what I'm, I, so now we're gonna see a little spike in demand for uh, everything from turkeys to chickens to beef because there's a, a shortage of global protein. And what's that been so far? Like what's it done for prices? Well, so far in the United States, at least, prices, you wouldn't be able to tell that ASF was happening, basically. On um, pork or on anything? On, on pork, on pork specifically. So we really haven't seen a big price move on pork in the last uh, 30 to 60 days, even though you would think that you should when we've when we're got a country that's got 1.4 billion people and 20 million, I'm sorry, 100 and some million hogs dead. Yeah, exactly. Because our exports haven't necessarily been affected. China has, up to this point, been working through a glut of their own pork, right? So it's been a little deceiving. People it thought that there was a crisis and it was going to be immediate. That crisis is coming. But China has basically been doing everything they possibly can between importing from other countries and slaughtering a, a large amount of their, their hogs that can be consumed to kind of stave off the effects, right? So yeah, up to this point, we're dealing with a fairly normal 
pork market as far as you know the seasonals were entering june we had memorial day yep. uh you know it, you wouldn't be able to tell that this was a this was a very dark cloud looming over the market but it will, it will be if we see the disease spread then we're going to end up probably selling more chicken so if i'm in chickens or if i'm in beef if i'm in any other protein turkeys seafood i i should probably just say you know there's a real opportunity here for me to, to get higher prices because my product's going to be more in demand because there'll be less pork to satisfy the protein uh, plate, right? Yeah. One of, one of the things I've tried to nail home with all of the markets in this, in this building, particularly the reporters that cover poultry and beef and even seafood, be aware of ASF. We've, the world has never seen anything like this before. China is a huge consumer. As you said, they have 1.4 billion people under a dictatorship. The only way you can, the easiest way you can keep people happy from uprising is to keep them fed, right? And keep the bellies full. So every market needs to at least be aware of this. You know, this is not something you want to be blind to. Got it. Closing other thoughts on protein. This, uh, we talked protein, pork prices, prognostications. Do you have one more prognostication for me, Russ Barton? <laughs> uh, to be honest, my entire days uh, for the last several months have been centered around ASF. And as I just said, if your listeners need to take one thing away from this is be concerned with this. You know, you don't, maybe don't necessarily take any measures right now or, you know, whatever. It depends on what market you're in. But just be aware that this is happening, that this is serious, that it's probably because of the, uh, the breeding stock losses that they've incurred, the amount of sows that have died. This is going to be something that's around for years. You know, estimates right now are four to five years before we're talking about recovery and things like that. So this is going to be with us for a long time, and it's going to have most likely real ramifications across the, uh, across the global protein industry. Indeed, it shall. All right. It's the Business of Agriculture podcast. Russ Barton with Erner Berry and Laura Zinger were my guests. Thank you guys for being on. Thank you. And uh, until next time, it's the Business of Ag podcast. I'm your host, Damian Mason. Join us again.